Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here from a cold and frosty Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in similar conditions in south-east London. And as our guest this week, we have one of the most interesting and evocative men of the last 50 years, Peter Hayne, who became a cabinet minister under the Blair government, but just as significantly, I think, was part of the resistance against apartheid in the, in the 60s and 70s. man I hated bitterly as a young boy of wanting this uh, mad keen in 1970 because he was wanting to cancel the South African tour, but of course he was right, very right indeed. A historical figure. Peter, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me on, uh, Peter and Richard. Delighted to be with you. Peter, very honoured to have you on the podcast. Particularly glad that you're able to discuss your recent book with Andre Odendahl, Pitched Battles, which takes us right through the history of South African cricket up to the present day. Arising from that, Peter, it seems to me one powerful theme in the book is that segregated sport in South Africa goes back a very, very long way. It's something that we English perhaps comfortably tend to associate with apartheid. But it starts really, doesn't it, from the very beginnings of organised um, cricket and organised sport in South Africa. And it's associated with the English in South Africa as much as the Afrikaners, isn't it? It is, Richard. And this is something that I hadn't fully appreciated, to be perfectly frank, until working with my great friend and co-author Andre Udendahl, who is South Africa's foremost sports and crickets, especially historian, who'd researched the history going back to the 19th century, discovering such uh, gems as this incredible demon fast bowler, uh, William Hendricks, uh, Crom Hendricks, who was said to be the fastest bowler in the world, possibly even faster than the demon Sopoth, uh, the Australian fast bowler. And, and he shows that actually, under British colonial rule, effectively under English colonial rule, Cecil John Rhodes, in collaboration with uh, the cricket and sports authorities, who were all, as it were, creatures of, of British colonial rule, decided to exclude uh, black South Africans, Crom Hendricks especially, who was the Basil Oliveira of his age in the 1890s, from being able to play for South Africa, because he was recognised by touring England team in in the 1890s as being an incredible bowler who would probably tear them apart if the South African tour of 1894 included him. And so Cecil John Rhodes excluded him, and that really marked the formal exclusion of black sports people, in this case cricketers, from representing their country and realising their opportunities uh, in a way that whites were able to do. So Although all of that was institutionalized under apartheid and the laws were brought in from the late 40s and through the 50s and 60s and 70s to segregate sport in a very rigid way, uh, actually it began, racism in South African support began under English rule. I found it interesting in the book that you found it um, easier when you were sort of negotiating towards the end of apartheid, you found it easier in, in sport to talk to Afrikaners like Danny Craven than to, than to the English representatives in South African sport, didn't you? Well, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously from the, 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 South, the white South African English tribe, as it were. My mm. parents were both white South African English speakers born in South Africa. And I spent my, my boyhood there and I played cricket uh, at Pretoria Boys High and Hatfield Primary School. And I loved cricket. I remember seeing the England team, I think it was 1964, touring South Africa. Mike Smith's team, yeah. Mike Smith's team, that's right. I'm going to see them at Birria Park in Pretoria and seeing the young Mike Brearley and, and Robin Hobbs walking around the boundary and these were really exotic figures. Uh, Mike Brearley, of course, subsequently became England cricket captain and was the only cricketer of his generation to support our campaign to stop white South African only sport. So I, I was I was reared a, a cricket enthusiast. And uh, yes, my, my interest in it was partly sport, cricket, and partly experiencing as a, as a sports lover, as a mad sports fanatic as a boy, being unable to play with black kids 
uh, as at cricket or soccer or as it's called out there, football or rugby, with or against black teams because um, it was against the law of the land. When did that start to hit you? Because a lot of, most people, the great majority of white South Africans just accepted that, I think. They did. All my relatives, my uh, friends at school were, in a sense, blind to the reality of apartheid. And we were the only family, the only white family in Pretoria who invited black guests and often political activists into our house uh, as friends and equals. Mostly blacks uh, went through the back door of, of white South African homes to service the kitchen or clean or look after the gardens, never through the front door, as one of my parents' friends said, and I remember being very struck by it, that's the first time I've come through the front door of a white person's house. So we were quite un- very unusual. I met your immensely distinguished father in the House of Commons. I thought I think you brought him there once in the about 15 years ago. Anyway, I met him at the Strangers Bar, I think it was. We had a lovely conversation about his battle and clearly he was an enormous your both your parents were enormous influences on you in that way and they led the way in many ways they did i think the occasion you met uh, was when andre Udendal launched his book an african game so it was yes. uh, on the uh, on the on the bar the terrace of the, oh, of the yeah. house of commons and you were there hosting it very generously and that shows also andre Udendal's immense sort of pioneering research on this whole origins of of black participation in South African sport, which had been written completely out of history, an official history of cricket and so on. But yeah, my dad um, and, and my mom were very influential on me, and I was very proud of them. My dad particularly, he used to bowl to me and train me properly to, to, to bat at cricket, and I used to bowl to him. And we actually created a cricket uh, pitch in, in the garden of our house out of rather rough terrain. And uh, he helped uh, me do that. So he was very, very keen cricket uh, follower himself. Peter, I'm interested in a phenomenon that seems to come up regularly in sort of memoirs of South Africa, and that's this sort of idea of a white bubble. The white South Africans profess themselves unaware of um, non-white South Africans except as servants or low-paid workers. I really want to explore that a bit. Did people really live that way? Or was that just an excuse for sort of living in... In privilege, and in particular, were white people totally unaware of non-white cricketers and sportsmen, even after Basil Oliveira started playing for England. And this links into the theme that you pick up at the end of the book at uh, pitch battles about denialism. Was um, the whole of sort of non-white experience in an effort in South Africa was that just sort of collectively denied or ignored? Yes, I think you've expressed it quite well, Richard. I mean, it wasn't so much turning a blind eye deliberately, but in not wanting to know exactly what was going on. I mean, blacks were servants. They were almost slave-like class to, to white South Africans. And most of my, well, all of my school friends, all of my friends and cousins had never been in a black township like I had with my mum or dad had never actually seen what was going on. They lived in a, in, a, in a, it is in a way in a bubble, but they also chose to live that way. And I remember taking my kids to visit uh, Dakar concentration camp in the 1980s and noticing that the village of Dakar was right alongside it and being told uh, that actually villagers claimed not to know anything about the gas ovens right next to them and the experience of Jews being incinerated there. And I think it's a bit like this with South Africa. I mean, all of my school friends, my cousins had never been into a black township, had never actually asked any questions about what was really going on under apartheid. And in sport, it didn't occur to them in a way that occurred to me, because I was mixing with blacks as equals uh, through my parents' influence and friendship networks that it never occurred to my school friends in our whites-only football teams or rugby teams or cricket teams that there was anything odd about whites-only playing in these teams. Similarly, another big influence on me was uh, I, I was very keen on football and supported the local Arcadia Shepherds, sometimes called Arcadia United team, and played for them as a, as a youngster. 
And we used to walk to the games together with friends and then separate because our black friends had to go into the end of the ground reserved for black spectators. And we went into the, the white part, which was the majority part. And then they brought in a, a law in, I think, around about 1963 or four, banning black spectators from attending white matches, which was actually crazy because they were the most enthusiastic chanters for the white Arcadia team. <laughs> Some of them were so mad keen that they shinned up trees overlooking the Caledonian Stadium where Arcs, as they were called, Arcadia played. And to watch the game. And white neighbours complained about this. And oh, police gosh, dogs yeah. were used to pull them down, bloodied uh, onto the ground to prevent them watching their team. And I remember seeing this and being absolutely mortified by it. And it was one of those searing experiences of apartheid life as a boy that made me take the action that I did subsequently. It reminds me, of course, that the Newlands Grand, wasn't there? there? There was the cage, so-called cage, a little section of this great test ground where blacks and so, coloureds, as they were known, could go and watch the game. So, Peter, by your late teens then, Peter, you're becoming a political activist and your activism is aimed against apartheid. You're, you've joined the struggle, as it were, and you're going to go on and make a huge international reputation to become a hero to some, a hate figure to others, mobilising domestic and perhaps more importantly, international opposition to South African involvement in international sport and other activities as well. Where did you first set out on that path? Well, my, in, back in Pretoria in the early 60s, my mother and father were jailed when I was 11 years old, held for two weeks, couldn't find any evidence against them and then left them out. And then my mother was banned. Uh, banning order was designed to stop you being involved in political activity or to meet more than one other person at a time. And one of the restrictions in a banning order was you could not meet with another banned person or talk to them. So when they banned my dad a year later, this presented the government with a dilemma they'd never had, which is a married couple being banned, and they had to be given exceptionally special permission to talk to each other which, of course, they were most grateful. And that was really the end of the road for us. And they then stopped my dad working as an architect, and we had to leave the country, to earn a he to earn a living. And the family came, myself, age 16, uh, to, South, to, to London in 1966. And a few years later, having joined the anti-apartheid movement in London, following my parents, I then got very involved myself. And I was still sports mad. And when we first came to England in 1966, it was very exciting. The West Indies were touring that, that year. And my brother and I went to Lords and the Oval and to Trent Bridge. And it was just amazing to see players like Gary Sobers and the great fast bowler Wes Hall and the opening batsman Rowan Canhai. Conrad Hunt. And all of that. Can I batted number Hunt. three, Peter? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Opening batsman Conrad Hudson and Rohan Kanai, yes. Uh, number three batsman and Lance Gibbs, the And And, you know, it was a great experience for us. And, and so I was always sports mad and I increasingly got involved in politics and found myself increasingly active and really had taken over my life while I was still doing the last year of my A-levels and then towards university. And I always thought sport, from my own experience, was a particularly vulnerable spot for apartheid because it was very difficult to do anything about economic sanctions or arms sanctions because these involved you know, big forces, geopolitical and commercial forces, terribly difficult to actually do anything about. But sport, I just felt we could do something about. And that's what propelled me to come up with the idea of using non-violent direct action to stop white South African sports tours. But it was the Basil D'Oliveira incident and affair in 1968, which you've written about, Peter, in your wonderful book on him, um, that really changed the whole landscape for me and particularly for the anti-apartheid sports struggle. And so out of that business, you started to agitate against the 1970. South African tour of England 
um, which was booked. It was due to come. Tell, tell us, uh, tell us how you did that. Well, the sequence was first of all that by 1968, you'll remember Basil D'Oliveira had established himself in the England team, and I remember watching him as a regular, as a, as yeah, a yeah. key member of the team. And then, unaccountably, he was excluded from the England tour to South Africa in 1968. And there was an uproar about it, led by the legendary cricket commentator and journalist John Arlott. And eventually, he was chosen uh, to go after Tom Cartwright had pulled out. And then the South African Prime Minister, Foster, who, by the way, had been interned during the Second World War for his pro-Nazi activities, denounced the team as a team of the anti-apartheid movement, which is completely ridiculous, and stopped the tour. Despite that, despite that immense rebuff and rude rejection to the, of English cricket, the English cricket authorities, as if nothing had happened a few months ago, then announced that they were going to invite South Africa to tour in 1970. And I was absolutely outraged. I thought, we've got to do something about it. And I issued a statement, got a, got a statement issued saying we're going to stop the tour by direct action. And that I started to do. And there was a tour in 1969, the summer of 1969, by the Wilf Isaacs 11, a wealthy South African businessman who brought this uh, mostly youth side to tour England. And uh, we identified where it was playing and the first ever match to be interrupted by this method of nonviolent direct action was by a group of friends and led by myself who ran onto the pitch in Basildon in Essex. Imagine it wasn't very popular in Essex. It wasn't very popular. In fact, Peter, nothing I did at that time was popular at all. I was... It was, it was on the one hand, a dialogue of the deaf with sports um, fans who just didn't understand why we were interfering with their sport. And on the other hand, a real sense of these people were threatening English civilization. Cricket played on village greens in Basildon or in wherever it was. And um, it, it was a real clash of civilizations in a way that it came that whole campaign came to represent. So so there were matches of the Wilf Isaacs tour disrupted. Uh, the Davis Cup tennis match of July 1969, I led a, a small group of us to interrupt that. First time a tennis match had been interrupted. And then, of course, the Springboks were due to tour, mm. to, to begin their tour. The all-white South yes. African Springbok team uh, was due to tour in, in October 69 for three months. And we decided to use that as a dummy run to stop the 1970 cricket tour. And we formed a campaign called the Stop the 70 Tour campaign, short STST, which I found myself chairing, having thought I'd be a foot soldier in it. How old were you at this point, Peter? You're not very old, are you? No, I'm not. I'm 19, Peter. (laughs) That's quite young (laughs) for a chair of a major... Yeah, I, I, uh... I suddenly found myself having been you know, rather shy, uh, never seeking, I mean, I never appeared in a school play or spoke from public platforms much or anything like that. And suddenly find myself holding press conferences at the eye of this enormous storm as um, a 19-year-old in stopping rugby matches, in invading the pitch at Twickenham and right across the country, not myself, but there were 25 matches. And that acted as, as a springboard for the stopping of the cricket tour because the rugby tour was so badly disrupted, not just by pitch invasions, but by things like we booked a, a young woman into the Springbok Hotel in Piccadilly <laughs> and she found out where they were staying, where their bedrooms were, and gummed up their door locks with solidifying agent in the middle of the night. This is on the <laughs> eve of their match against England, so they had to break, <laughs> break down the doors to get out. Then we, uh, we had somebody dressed in a suit, and none of us ever wore suits at that stage. He was a guy called Michael Deeney who worked in the city, and he um, put on his best suit and tie and got onto the Springbok coach with some of the players on it, engine idling, and persuaded the driver to go into the hotel to talk to the management, allegedly. Took his place, drove the coach off, crashed it with the Springboks, sort of, some of them trying to wrestle with him, and chained himself to the steering wheel. So there were all these things going on, and it created circumstances which 
I believe, allowed us then to, to organise a mass movement to stop the 1970 all-white South African cricket tour, which I felt very uh, double-edged about, because as a cricket enthusiast, that was probably the greatest um, uh, cricket team of the modern age with, with, you know, giants in it. It was. I mean, it was. It was the, if you look at that South African team, and you, my heart still goes out to them, really, you know, the Pollocks, that great wicketkeeper batsman, Lindsay Backer Barlow, that incredible all-rounder. Eddie Barlow went to the same school as me, yeah, in Pretoria. Barry, Barry Richards. Ba- Barry and Richards. Barry Richards. Yeah. 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 This great Pro- Mike Proctor. I mean, it was, it was some team, actually. It was an incredible team. And it's been interesting meeting some of them afterwards because after we stopped the cricket tour, and in a way to go back to that, it built up so much pressure that... For example, there was a Commonwealth Games due to take place in Edinburgh at the same time as the cricket tour was due. And we persuaded African countries, Asian countries, Caribbean countries to pull out if the cricket tour went ahead. So you'd have had a a whites-only Commonwealth Games would basically be in England and Canada and Australia and New Zealand because South Africa by then had left the Commonwealth. And And a white tour happened. And the politics around that became so explosive and almost geo-explosive that um, the tour was eventually stopped. And it was a seismic event, but it was the threat of non-violent direct action because we would have wrecked the tour. Hmm. And it was a great relief to me that um, it was it was stopped a few weeks before it was due to start. Peter, did you get any support within the cricket world for stopping the 72? And not necessarily for the tactics you were using, but just for the for the principle of uh, not inviting a white-only South African cricket team? The only figures that I remember supporting us of any standing were Mike Braley, who very courageously joined our March 1970 conference and spoke from right. the platform, and... He was the only cricket figure alongside John Arlott uh, as, the, as the voice of cricket, as he was known then. There was virtually nobody else. And we were viewed as an alien bunch of communists, anarchists, and various other unruly drug-taking nasties by the MCC and by the Lord's Cricket Establishment, who I mentioned earlier, Dialogue of the Deaf. It, it was just, there was just no meeting of minds. So, no, the answer to your question, Richard, is, is with the exception of those two giants, um, virtually nobody else supported us. I'm, I'm no, lower down the ranks there might have been. should be said about Mike Brady, the sacrifice he made. At that stage, he was, I think he was still just about in his late 20s. He had an, a glittering future as an England player ahead of him. And of course, after that, he wasn't selected for six years. You know, the, the establishment took a long time to forgive him, and it was—he's quite lucky to come back at all. Yes, I, I salute him. The only other player of his standing, because of course the rugby issue was alive at the time, was John Taylor, the British Lion mm. and Welsh uh, international, who refused to play. Nobody else did, and those. You know, if you if you think now we're talking in we're talking at a time when you've had Lewis Hamilton knighted as the, the probably the best ever Formula One driver, you've had the whole Black Lives Matter issue take prominence that would have been you know, incredible to imagine even a year ago with Premier League players taking the knee. Uh, with the English cricket authorities saying there should be diversity in the in the administration of the game. Mike Brearley was a very brave um, young man at the time, and, and that's why I do salute him. One heard a lot, uh, Peter, of the phrase building bridges with um, South Africa in defence of the tour. Is it fair to call this phrase complete hypocrisy? Was there ever any effort made to... Um, build a bridge to, to South Africa to break up apartheid in sport at all and to do anything for, for non-white players, even after the example of um, Basil de Oliveira had made, them, made their plight obvious to, uh, to people. Did the white establishment try to build any bridges at all in that way? No. No is the answer. It was always not only hypocritical, but deeply dishonest, sophistry, to put it nicely. 
Why? Because throughout all these years, since apartheid was first established from 1948 onwards, that building bridges was happening, the situation was getting worse. Black cricketers, and we tell their story of the fight for non-racial cricket, for cricket as it is now in South Africa, open to everybody and as it always should have been, uh, regardless of their skin colour or any other characteristic. Um, Non-racial sports officials were not only, was there no bridge building with them, but with whites only from London and Sydney uh, and, uh, uh, and Auckland and so on, where the old white commonwealth stuck together. But actually the situation was getting worse. So non-racial sports officials were being issued with banning orders like my parents were. They were being jailed, they were being harassed, they were being uh, sacked from jobs. In the case of Dennis Brutus, who was the most, one of the most prominent non-racial sports leaders, he was actually shot um, while trying to get over the border to go to uh, a meeting of the Olympics to try and get white South Africa excluded from the Olympics. So That was what? That was in the late 50s, wasn't it? Quite early on, the Brutus shooting. In the early 1960s, yes. Yeah. Uh, and he eventually served a prison sentence on Robben Island. I seem to remember he was just left to bleed in the streets by the South African police, wasn't he? He, he was left to bleed in the streets, and not only that, Peter, but another characteristic of a apartheid came into play because they called for an ambulance. An ambulance arrived, but it was an ambulance for whites. That's it. And, That's and it couldn't pick up Dennis bleeding on the pavement because he was black. So they had to leave him there for another ambulance to come, not knowing whether he, he had a very... He'd been shot in the stomach, so it was a serious injury. Uh, and... So this building bridges uh, fantasy, well, hypocrisy, uh, not only was it not causing a relaxation of apartheid, the very opposite was happening. It was only when we imposed a boycott, which happened from 1970, the, the stopping of the 1970 cricket tour and the disruption of that rugby tour meant that white South Africa never toured England again at cricket or rugby until after... Uh, the transformation happened and Nelson Mandela had been let out of prison. Peter, you must have come under intense personal pressure from all kinds of directions when you were leading this momentous campaign. Tell us a little bit about what happened. Well, I did, although, you know, it's funny, I was young and if I look back on it, I'm proud of what I did and I don't retract any of it. But I, I suppose there was a kind of fearless innocence of youth in that I just felt it was a moral cause that needed to be pursued, needed to be prosecuted. There was an enormous opportunity to actually achieve 100% success, which is what we did in stopping that 1970 cricket tour. And that's a rare thing for a protest movement or a moral cause to achieve. I was always confident we could do it, and I didn't worry too much about things that were... Did, did people threaten your career? Did they people make life difficult for you in other ways? I got a massive amount of hate mail, and if, there'd be, if this had been an era of the social media in 1969-70, it would have been even worse, I imagine. And I got personal threats, people trying to, one tried, a fascist tried to pull a knife on me in a pub near where I lived in, Putney. And uh, I got other, other threats. I also, when I applied to university in London to do economics and politics and political science, the LSE actually refused to admit me and gave no reason for it. Then I went to Queen Mary College, now Queen Mary University, and the Department uh, of Economics and Political Science, headed then by Morris Peston, later Lord Peston, and the, my politics tutor was Trevor Smith, Lord Smith they became, so we all ended up in the yeah. House of Lords. <laughs> but um, they admitted me, but the university authorities at Queen Mary College and London University tried to put pressure on them to persuade them not to admit me. So, yeah, there was a, a lot of um, opposition to my, to my progressing as a career. And after I got married and had a young son, I applied to the Union of Post Office Workers, to, led by Tom Jackson, to be a research officer in 1976, and he appointed me. But the, the question I was asked by my boss, the head of research, who was a member of the MCC, lovely guy, <laughs> said, um, so I'm in the middle of a, a 
being an interview about being appointed to do pay negotiations and things like that for the for the postal workers. He says, "Do you really hate cricket?" <laughs> uh, and you know, my life was full of this. Do you really hate cricket? Do you really hate rugby? Why are you such a nasty person? Oh, when I when I before I met you, I thought you were the devil incarnate. So, <laughs> so I, I was a real hate figure, and for the South Africans especially. In 1972, um, they sent me a letter bomb of the kind that was assassinating anti-apartheid leaders right across the world. Fortunately, there was a... They sent you? Who sent you a letter bomb? The South African Security Services. Crikey. A boss, as it was called, very appropriately, the Bureau of State Security. uh, Boss, its acronym was, and uh, it certainly operated in that way. So... We were actually a family breakfast at my parents' home where I was still living in 1972, age 22, and a pile of campaign mail arrived. And there, my young sister Sally pulled out this contraption of balsa wood and wires and uh, um, consoles and uh, just a horrifying thing, which the, the IRA bomb squad of the Metropolitan Police came down in record time, took away and made safe, but said could have blown us all up, including our house. And then the most bizarre thing that happened to me was being framed and charged with a bank theft I didn't even know it happened and knew nothing about. In Putney in October 1975, I found myself arrested for a bank snatch from a local branch of Barclays Bank, outside of which I had demonstrated uh, on behalf of the anti-apartheid movement who were trying to get Barclays to disinvest, disinvest from South Africa. And that, um, you know, was a horrible experience. And I was eventually acquitted after a two-week trial in the Old Bailey. So, yes, um, you know, two-week trial in the Old Bailey. Who were the? Uh, that was you were tried by you were tried in front of Judge King Hamilton, weren't you? I was uh, Judge uh, who, King Hamilton, who happened to be a member of the MCC. Yeah, my, yes, and he was a cricket my, lover and a notorious. <laughs> didn't he? And he, uh, he loved tell, telling the jury the cricket score from time to time. <laughs> He did. Um, he, he could be regarded, I suppose, as a quixotic character in that sense. But from my point of view, he was deeply hostile. Mm. He should and have my, accused himself. He should have accused yes, himself. Yes, he should have. Yeah. It was said in bar circles that he'd asked for the case uh, <laughs> and that they were happy to give it to him. But my own QC and indeed the prosecuting uh, team were horrified at his bias. And the prosecutors were really worried that... He suddenly invented a new bit of evidence in his summing up, which judges are not supposed to do. They're <laughs> supposed to sum up the evidence that's gone before. It's suddenly, in order to, because there was a, the whole thing was so ridiculous that in order to try and, you know, pin it on me, he invented a whole new bit of evidence that had never been brought up in court and then had to withdraw it under pressure from both sets of, of lawyers, mine and, and the prosecutors. I was eventually acquitted. I, I, three years before, in 1972, I'd been on trial in the Old Bailey for conspiracy to stop a sports apartheid tours. That was a four-week trial financed by the South Africans and, and brought by Francis Benyon, mm. private prosecution for conspiracy. And I could have gone to jail, and my lawyer expected that that would happen had I not been... Um, able to avoid that and being acquitted by the jury on a hung verdict um, of the three most serious charges and only convicted of sitting on a tennis court in Bristol during the Davis Cup match between white South Africa and England in July 1969 for a few minutes. So what you're getting a picture there is the British state, one might say the deep state, in collaboration with the South African authorities, including Boss, because you don't get Old Bailey trials which are on trumped-up charges without the deep state being involved somewhere along the line, do you? Well, it was very difficult to make any sense of it in normal criminal trial terms. Nobody really believed that I was a bank thief who would go and nick £490 worth of fibres from a branch around the corner of where I lived. But nevertheless, I found myself facing a serious charge. And as I was able to dig into the evidence that was revealed afterwards, including by a former boss agent, the journalist Gordon Winter, who wrote a book called Inside Boss, 
And he said that I was set up by a South African agent who looked rather like me. And clearly, the thief did look rather like me and behaved in an odd fashion, including throwing the money back to the bank staff who were pursuing him. And, and there was a fresh fingerprint on that wad of banknotes that wasn't mine. So, and there was some evidence of British intelligence um, collaboration uh, in, in the prosecution uh, and the decision to bring a case against me, which was ridiculous from the outset. And it was so ridiculous but sinister in a way that on the Monday morning after I'd been arrested um, and been held for some 11 hours, I think it was, uh, on, on the Friday, I'd been arrested on the Friday afternoon. On the, on the Monday morning, the story having been leaked by the police to the media, there was then in the then London Evening Standard, which if you remember, used to come out sort of middayish. A picture of me on the front page, Peter Hayne due to appear on an identification parade this afternoon, and the bank staff had read the paper before they came on this ID parade uh, <laughs> to check whether I was the thief. <laughs> and the cashier picked me out, even though the staff who'd been chasing the thief said it wasn't me. Um, so it was this whole bizarre Kafkaesque series of, of events, which was a, a bit of a nightmare. It's one of the one of the key. Kind of things we, one has to understand here is that at that time, apartheid South Africa was a crucial ally of the West, um, of Britain and the United States and the NATO alliance against Russia. Simon's Town was a strategic asset of the first uh, first caliber, and it's not a, it is absolutely not a coincidence that that apartheid fell a year after the Berlin Wall. It's once the, in my view, is that's a fair comment, isn't it? It is, Peter, and the anti-apartheid struggle was seen through a Cold War prism by London and Washington and our intelligence services in the case of MI5 and MI6 and the, the special branch, the Metropolitan Police's special branch. It, they saw it through. The, so we were seen as, you know, anti-apartheid activists. I mean, I was in the Young Liberals at the time. I was never, never have been a communist. We're seen as, you know, communist agitators. And South Africa, the apartheid system and government very astutely positioned itself as against, you know, communism taking over Africa and on the side of the West. Hence those hideous wars in the peripheries of in Namibia and so on. Indeed, in Angola too. Yes. Um, Peter, the, the uh, boss campaigns against you must have been, well... More than irritating, must have been pretty terrifying to go through at the time, and a great ordeal for your family. But in, I suppose, in one sense, you might have been um, taking them as a compliment because uh, it, it showed it showed how intensely you were regarded as an enemy of the state, and perhaps that showed how um, how much the sports boycotts, which you'd promoted, meant to South Africa, and how much they'd um, were starting to crack the uh, the apartheid system. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it underlined to me how, how successful we'd been, that all this effort would be taken to try and take me out, um, either to kill me as in, in the letter bomb or to stop me organising through various prosecutions. And, and actually, if you talk to white South Africans now, uh, and I do, I go back regularly, I mean, I love going back, and I'm allowed to do so, obviously, in a way that I was never able to. I often meet um, white South Africans, uh, particularly of, you know, in their 60s and above, who will say, I hated you with a venom. I absolutely hated you. And I'd have, you know, kneecapped you if I'd got half a chance. And some of them still feel a bit that way. Uh, but most now recognize that actually what we did was necessary. And to their credit... Cricketers whose careers were cut off in their prime, like Mike Proctor and Peter Pollock and Graham Pollock, who were due to tour in 1970 with that incredible South African team, have also said uh, that they actually agree with what um, I did and what our campaign was seeking to achieve. And, and I always uh, you know, uh, credit them with that. I think it was very generous. And Proctor... Mike Proctor, whom I met and get on well with, and, re and we regard each other as friends now, he said to me when, his, when a book of his was being launched in South Africa House, he said to the audience, 
you know, uh, this figure, Peter Hayden, I hated him at the time, and he stopped my international career, but actually he did the right thing. It's very moving, that. And I, I've had other conversations with other great players. And in other sports, Mornay Duplessis uh, said the same thing. What about, did you ever meet Basil Dolivera? I did, although it was only long afterwards. I met him when I was invited in 1994 when South Africa toured England, the real South Africa. Uh, that was the first South Africa first tour post-apartheid, post, post, uh, yeah. It was. And I was invited um, by Ali Bakker, actually, who'd been captain of the South African team that was due to tour in 1970, and it was another whose career was cut off in its prime, uh, to come and be a guest uh, with the South Africans in a hospitality box at, at Lord's. And um, it was actually during that day that I met Basil Dolivera because he'd been invited to come to the match I think by a newspaper, and I met him there. Um, but he, he, and we had a brief chat, and, and he, I sensed with him a, a wistfulness that he was looking at a match many decades later that if he'd been of a different age, he might even have uh, been playing in. Um, because, of course, he was a great cricketer and should always have represented his own country, had the, the laws of the land and apartheid allowed him to do so instead of to play for, for cricket. But Basil Oliveira was not somebody that, at the time of the Stop the Tours campaign, I had a lot of time for, because he never, I felt he never really associated himself with our cause at all. I mean, he saw himself as very non-political, actually at the centre of a cauldron, as he literally was in 1968, when that cricket tour was stopped by the South African government. The England cricket tour was stopped by the South African government going there, and it was because of him. But in retrospect, I think the fact that he was non-political, the fact that he was just a cricketer, mm -hmm. actually meant that he reached parts of public opinion and cricketing opinion that I could never reach. That's because right. I was I'm seen sure. Sure that's right. yeah. in very kind of black and white terms, if I could use that phrase and I was seeing you know as anti-cricket and so on whereas he was just a victim and he was very very important in changing the whole way in which our campaign was seen as it took off in 1969-70 because you only had to as I did in every speech mention Basil Oliveira or in every radio or television interview or media interview that actually people were grappling with this new phenomenon because it never happened before that sport had been hit with these kind of protests. Um, never happened, not in England or anywhere else in the world, uh, on that scale, at least. And there was a... I think Basil Oliveira's case was seismic in changing middle opinion. I'm not talking about extreme mm. opposition to us, but middle opinion, reasonable small L liberal, small C conservative opinion, uh, worried about the campaign to actually say, well, actually, there's something here. So the very fact that he was not uh, in any way associated with the anti-apartheid cause was, in fact, um, gave us extra strength. Peter, I remember reading about you uh, it, when I was 12 years old, and you were a bogeyman, you were an evil bastard, you were a commie, you were intent on bringing down everything which was decent and good. Um, perhaps you could talk about some of the some of the press coverage you got. Well, I remember the editor of the Sunday Express, Sir John Junor, saying this in something he wrote: "It would be a mercy for humanity if this unpleasant little creep were to fall into a sewage tank up to his ankles, head first. <laughs> and that was one of the nicer things said about me by my political opponents. So I was vilified. And in a way, it was water off a duck's back because I thought the morality of our stance was... Everybody was believes that you dug up cricket pitches. Is that true? I know. Everybody believes that. I never did. In fact, um, the only thing I did about cricket pitches was run on them and sit down. And I was, being a cricketer myself, the idea of digging up a pitch was an anathema, as was the idea I've often been accused of sprinkling tax on rugby 
pitches. The idea of actually hurting a rugby player, which would have happened if they'd rolled on those uh, doing a, a scrum or a maul or a ruck uh, or scoring a try, um, the idea is just, an, again, horrendous. So there was one teacher from Bristol who ran onto the pitch uh, when the Springboks were playing in Bristol in January 1970, who did sprinkle tin taps. But I'd never met him before. Like many others in that campaign, he was doing his own thing. And uh, I got the blame for it, like I got the blame for when when people were... Do you remember the the campaign to free George Davis? Mm, yeah, vividly. Uh, the East, the East Final Ender. day of the Trent Bridge test, was it? Yes, and I think it was in Leeds, actually. I think it was at Headingley. It it was Headingley, indeed. Um, uh, And I got phoned up on the day that his his friend, Peter Chappell, to try and draw attention to his innocence of that particular robbery, though George Davis had been convicted of other things, um, dug up the pitch uh, in in that that test match. And I got a phone call from ITN saying... Can you come on to talk about this? And were you responsible? Hmm. Uh, and I think that was the only time a cricket pitch was dug up. And it was dug up five years after the uh, 1970 cricket tour was stopped. Had nothing to do with me or the anti-apartheid cause. But there you go. You know, people believe certain things, whatever the facts. Don't confuse me with the facts, I think, is the, is the motto in this respect. Peter, I can't resist asking. I know you discussed on the Stop Seventy Two, or even even perhaps even used or contemplating using flashing mirrors at cricket pitches. I wondered if you'd ever thought of um, the tactic of synchronised movement behind the bowler's arm, which is something <laughs> something I proposed at uh, at Oxford when I was trying to uh, had a very minor role in in the um, in the campaign. <laughs> well, Richard, I didn't know that. Uh, and I'd never heard of it until you mentioned it. But in a way, it's an example of the campaign by this, that stage in the run-up to the uh, cricket tour, which was due to start in June 1970, having been halved in length because the MCC couldn't defend all the grounds from our protests, uh, that people were just doing their own thing. There were people breeding locusts to let them free on the... Uh, on on the pitch to to devour the the grass. There were people. That, I remember opening my front door where I lived with my parents um, in Putney and being greeted by a couple of wide-eyed model aeroplane fanatics whose aunt had a flat overlooking Lords, and they were proposing to zoom uh, their model aeroplanes down in the middle of play. So it was the idea of mirrors flashing in the batsman's eyes, model aeroplanes, locusts, you know, synchronised, <laughs> whatever it was. I need to explain <laughs> that Richard was at a very left-wing Oxford College, I was at Balliol, Balliol. Co- I was at Balliol College. And we were With Christopher Hitchens and somebody even more subversive, Chris Patton. Presumably you got no, together. I wasn't, I wasn't, Chris Patton had long left. Right, you probably regard me as a bit of a sort of wishy-washy liberal at the time, which is in that case. No, no, no. I'm going to say, Peter, you did very well for Mesa. You did very well to keep, I think, the, um, the Stop the 72 campaign, you know, on a broad political front and not get to, not get it too locked into, you know, student left-wing politics. Um, yes, I think that was very important, and it, it brings me to touch on something we mentioned earlier on. The other cricketing giant, along with Mike Brearley, of that era was, of course, David Shepherd. Mm. By then, the Bishop of um, Woolwich, and subsequently Bishop of Liverpool, who was the England cricket captain in the early 60s and maybe late 50s, I don't know. But he spoke out strongly and came on demonstrations and... Uh, he um, was very important in, I believed always in a very broad campaign, not only in the way that you've described it of, of the Stop the Tour protesters, Richard, but there was this interesting campaign called the Fair Cricket Campaign, launched by David Shepherd, by uh, Sir Edward Boyle, the former Conservative Education Minister, uh, in 1970. They got together with other luminaries and members of the establishment. And I, and, and I met them secretly 
They asked to see me uh, to just talk things through. And I was very supportive of that. Some of my kind of more extreme supporters were contemptuous. You know, well, you know, they're, uh, they're just members of the establishment. No, I thought, here we were in a, in a, in a cause which went through from our militant campaign through the anti-apartheid movement, which is a more conventional lobbying, uh, picketing outside and writing letters and delegations and so forth, to the fair cricket campaign that was reaching right into the English establishment. So fascinating what you're talking about, how to build a broadly based uh, political uh, campaign, which I'm sure came in handy when you started to get involved with New Labour and the creation of New Labour 40 years, 30 years afterwards. But can I ask you about the relevant, this is so relevant today, looking back on the sports boycott of South Africa, what do you think should now be the criteria for banning countries from international sport? There are so, and there are so many very delicate examples. There are, and it's a very complex, multi-sided um, answer to that question, I think. First of all, just to remind everybody, South Africa singled itself out. I was accused of bringing politics into sport. Actually, it was the South Africans who did so, because their apartheid politics determined that Basil Oliveira couldn't play for his own country at cricket. It was politics that stopped me as a young white South African boy playing cricket with or against anybody who didn't have a white skin. It was politics that stopped clubs being multiracial, that stopped provincial sides being multiracial, that stopped national sporting sides in South Africa being multiracial. So that the black Springbok captain, Sia Khaleesi, who lifted the Rugby World Cup in November 2019, after that incredible win over England, um, couldn't have played for his own country under apartheid because he wasn't white. And Darnie Craven, the white South African rugby supremo at the time of the Stop the Tour campaign, had said, over my dead body, will there ever be a black springbok? So um, South Africa was very clear cut in my mind because the politics infested the heart of sport in a unique way, only, I think, really um, paralleled, and there's a section in our book, Pitch Battles, which I found fascinating to research and write, by the way the Nazis excluded Jews from sport in the 1930s. Um, and it was uncanny, uh, an uncanny foreshadowing, in a way, of apartheid's uh, infestation of politics in its nasty discriminatory politics into sport, the way the Nazis manipulated it against the Jews and excluded them. But when you get to contemporary questions, you know, say, for example, um, the Arsenal player, Arsenal star, Mesut Ozil, protesting about the treatment of the Uyghurs in, and quite rightly, the horrendous treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province of China, um, should therefore China, there be no sport with China? Or should there be no sport involving Russia because of Russian, Russia's treatment of homosexual minorities or uh, horrendous treatment of uh, dissidents? Uh, I, you know, I, I'm very cautious about taking a hard and fast position on all of this. I think you have to judge it uh, on its merits in the particular circumstances. Otherwise, frankly, there'd be no sport. And we'd all find a reason for not playing each other because our own systems in all of our countries, and Britain's included, there'd be a reason why people have got a reason not to, um, to have sports links. On the other hand, um, you know, there are big moral questions at stake here. So that is, for example, Saudi Arabia using, this, using sport as a form of sports washing. Uh, to, to, to staging boxing matches in a Formula One race in, in 2021 um, to project itself on the global stage in a, in, a, in a very manipulative fashion, whereas it's just jailed a brave uh, Saudi women journalist who was, was speaking up for women's rights in Saudi Arabia. This is a very, very thorny territory, and I just think we need a, 
honest debates about it, and sports officials and sports players should just discuss it calmly on its merits rather than saying there's no, you know, these issues should never be discussed in our little sports bubble. But I would be very reluctant to um, start to divide the world up in a way that I think South Africa singled itself out for doing. Do you think there should be higher standards for country, or some, even some basic standards for countries that, that host international sports events? Well, I would like to think so, Richard. I would like to think that that would be possible. But, you know, you're looking for a perfect world, and in that world you probably wouldn't trade with these countries either, unless they had a fantastic human rights record, and that would leave very few countries in the world with which to trade. On the other hand, um, what I think should happen, and Lewis Hamilton's been a very interesting uh, example in this respect, because he didn't really start speaking about, about his own racist experience in motorsport or broader issues until he got right to the top. And now he is uh, starting to ask questions, for example, about the treatment of the the Shia Muslims in Bahrain, where a Grand Prix has been staged for the last few years, and terrible human rights abuses have have occurred. And he's asking questions about that. Um, And I think sports stars should ask those questions of themselves and their sports official bosses and shouldn't try to kind of pretend that they can be divorced from life any more than any of us can. Do you see signs that sports stars are showing, a, frankly, a higher standard of, well, a higher awareness of these issues than, um, well, than sports people did in, in the 60s and 70s? Oh, no question about it. To have um, the Premier League players taking the knee in solidarity with um, Black Lives Matters at the start of each match during 2020 was extraordinary as a development. And the same with a Formula One grid led by Lewis Hamilton. And there have been other examples, including in cricket, where that I think it started to impact on sports players and sports officials, men and women, in a way that these issues never did. Because going back to, you know, when I was in the cockpit of protest and hated for being so, in the, in the 1969-70 and, and afterwards. Um, I mentioned earlier that it was a dialogue of the deaf. People just saw themselves, sport was pure and in, as it were, in an, an oasis in life that shouldn't be touched by these wider questions of morality and, and social justice and human rights. So I think there's a different attitude now, but I'm not sure how different or whether this is, as it were, um, a movement of change or a moment of change that uh, might only go so far. What you're saying there about Black Lives Matter is so profound because going back to South Africa, we were very shocked. We had Aaron Sengupta, the historian, and Mo Ali, the, the terrific journalist, on a few weeks ago, and they were talking about Black Lives Matter unbelievably has become a very controversial matter inside South Africa itself with certain white cricketers saying it's political and it's it's shoddy i i um i'd love to know what you have to say about that i was horrified frankly at the reaction of the white cricketing world to black lives matter when they took a very antagonistic denialist stance i would have thought of all the teams given south africa's troubled and thorny and vicious history of apartheid in cricket, they would have been, South African, the South African cricket team, the first to take the knee, mm. whites and blacks, all of them. I mean, apartheid is sustained cricket uh, for half a century, and then before that, going back to racism in cricket and the treatment of Crom Hendricks in the late 19th century, mm. and so on. South Africa should have been leading the way, and white cricketers, along with their black international colleagues should have been actually the ones that said to the rest of the world, yep, we should all do this together, instead of which they're still arguing about amongst themselves. The whole of the cricket administration has been split and has been suspended. My co-author Andre Udendahl is part of a, an interim body trying to rescue the whole situation and, and charter a more positive way forth. But it's almost as if civil war has broken out 
in South African cricket over Black Lives Matter in a in a way that I find frankly repulsive and also astonishing. It's been so moving and a huge privilege to talk to you, Peter. Could you send our regards to the great cricket historian Andre Odendahl and your co-author, of course, and tell him that we would love to have him come on to talk to us soon? I'm sure he'd love to do so. And uh, he's a really interesting person. Uh, And uh, meanwhile, thanks to you both for having me on. And we'd love to have you back again, because we only, although this was one of the richest and most fascinating discussions imaginable, I think we only touched the surface of several areas. Well, this book ended up a kind of quite a magnum opus. We didn't start off that way, but um, <laughs> it's. I, I, I hope you enjoyed it. You managed to read all of it. So, yeah. We did. I mean, it's, it's, there's so much in your book, Pitch Battles. It's a huge sweep of history, but it's also the, the final chapters of, you know, really, you know, thought provoking about the, the whole future of sport. And um, hope you'll join us again. And it's goodbye for me, uh, Peter Oborn from Wiltshire, where in addition to the frost, we now have a heavy fog. And goodbye from me in South Wales, where it's been snowing. (laughs) 